from Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, produced in partnership with the Arab Studies Institute. I am Malihe Razazan. And I'm Khalil Bendeib. Award-winning journalist Rania Abu Zaid has made countless trips inside Syria, Turkey, Jordan, Lebanon, Washington, and several European towns and cities to cover the Syrian uprising and the deadly civil and proxy war that ensued and destroyed tens of millions of lives. Given the context of what was happening in the region, I very clearly remember people saying, okay, it might take longer in Syria, but it's going to happen. And I remember that that Ramadan in summer, every day they would protest in Ramadan after Tarawih prayers. And people were thinking that every Friday, as I said, the last Friday, there was this sense that potentially he might be toppled. But there was also the historical understanding that this regime brokers no dissent. This week, Rania Abuzaid joins us to talk about her new book, No Turning Back, Life, Loss, and Hope in Wartime Syria. Later in the program, Vomina's contributor Paola Messina sits down with Lebanese singer-songwriter Yasmin Hamdan to discuss her latest album, El Jamilat, The Beautiful Ones, which is taken from the Mahmoud Darwish poem, of which Hamdan explains is an ode to womanhood, celebrating beauty in multiplicity and contradictions. All this coming up on this week's Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. From Tunisia to Syria, Egypt to Yemen and Libya, in 2011, the entire region of the Middle East and North Africa was electrified by a long, pent-up, indigenous democratic fervor. Ordinary men and women stood up to tyranny, vanquished their fears, and risked their lives, calling for dignity, freedom, and bread. Award-winning freelance journalist Rania Abuzaid was in Syria in February of 2011 when ordinary Syrians joined their brothers and sisters in other parts of the region, calling for democracy and social and economic justice. In her new book, No Turning Back, Life, Loss, and Hope in Wartime Syria, Rania Abuzaid takes her readers through a Syrian landscape and paints the human portrait of a country devastated by eight long years of a seemingly endless war. Syria has always been a very difficult place to report from. The Syrian regime has restricted access to journalists by restricting journalist visas. But I used to go there on my Lebanese ID. I'm a Lebanese-Australian. And I also just used to go there because I love Syria, if not for journalistic purposes, for other reasons. So it was a place that I knew somewhat. And I say somewhat because I was most familiar with the big cities, of course, Damascus. I'd never been to Idlib before the uprising. I'd never been to Raqqa before the uprising. But I did know Damascus. And it was always a very difficult place to operate in because the Mukhabarat, the secret police, weren't secret. They didn't have to be. It was very openly police state. So it was always difficult to, to operate in Syria. And it only became more so as time went on. Because in summer of 2011, you were blacklisted by the Syrian regime, but not as a journalist. Instead, you were branded a spy for several foreign states placed on the wanted list of three of the four main intelligence directorates in Damascus and banned from entering the country. How did you find out about the ban and 
How did that change your reporting about Syria? I am still banned and I'm still um, on those wanted lists, unfortunately. I found out about it uh, almost by accident. At the time, Syrian activists used to, in some cases, pay people who were still inside the regime for information to know if their names were on wanted lists. And initially, that's how I found out, because a Syrian activist whom I know sent me a message telling me that this is what he had found out. I actually thought it was a joke. I didn't take it seriously until he sent me the file numbers and the exact wording of the claims. You know, very soon after that, I was contacted by Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, who also warned me that they had information that I was on these wanted lists. And I also corroborated that information with some uh, members of the regime whom I was still in contact with, and, and they told me that it was true. So I had it from several sources that this information was correct. But you managed to sneak into Damascus in 2013 and 2016 because one of the people you interview in your book, which we'll talk about later, is Talal, whose daughter Hanin was in an Anusra prison, and he had a little perfume shop in Damascus. Yes, I didn't actually sneak into Damascus. Oh, you didn't? No, I had permission. All of those uh, arrest warrants against me were temporarily frozen, and they let me in for other reasons. In 2016, it was to attend a conference that was um, being held by the British Syrian Society, and I used that opportunity to slip away from the conference and to go and see Talal, because I otherwise could not have got into that part of the country. British Syrian society, from what I've read, is very closely linked to the regime. Yes, my understanding is that uh, Asma Assad's father, uh, Bashar al-Assad's father-in-law, actually heads the, uh, the society. Syrians have been largely missing from the tale of the country's destruction, and various regional and international players and their official and unofficial backers on social media and elsewhere have been pushing certain narratives that fits their own agenda. Based on what you have seen, people you've spoken with, the place that you know so well and for so long, and your reporting, what are some of the false narratives that have taken hold about the uprising and the aftermath in Syria? Syria is such a polarized conflict that even the concept of truth has come under attack. And it's a very dangerous and very startling fact that facts are no longer facts. I mean, and it's not just uh, restricted to Syria, even if we look at, you know, what's happening in Trump's America Mm. with quote unquote fake news and things like this. I mean, people just want to select the information that suits their particular political narrative and they will ignore or demonize everything that might challenge that view. And it's a very sad development. There has been a concerted effort, however, by a very small but loud group of people that are, again, fed and led by state actors. On all sides. Exactly. But we did not see the same to this degree happening, for example, in Iraq or in Tunisia or in Egypt. We saw uh, the extreme cases, of course, in Iran during the 2009 protest movement. How do you explain um, the case of Syria? You know, I think that social media has amplified it and it has made it easier for anybody with an opinion to lash out and to retweet information or disinformation that pleases them. And the Twitter trolls can come for you like an army that is intimidating and that is difficult. And also Syria is a a much longer conflict than many of the other, like the Tunisian uh, revolution was over very quickly, events in Egypt, although they still continue, the of them, the actual, you know, physical in the streets part was over 
relatively quickly compared to Syria. So I think, and these Twitter troll armies are really, some of them can be very professional. As you say, you know, there, there's accusations, for example, of Russian-backed, you know, Twitter trolls and, and things like this. And this is just, I think, a new fact of life in this social media world that we live in. Syria has also polarized and divided the Arab world. It also has become a very polarizing uh, topic amongst Syrians, Palestinians and Syrians and other Arabs. How do you explain that, aside from social media and virtual space? The geostrategic importance of Syria, the political weight of Syria in the Middle East, and the fact that whatever happens in Syria will affect other states beyond its borders. I mean, that's one of the reasons why in early on in 2011, I almost stopped covering the rest of the region to focus on Syria, because I knew that whatever happened in Syria was going to be absolutely monumental one way or the other. It was key to keep your eye on this place and to see what is happening in a place that is that important, obviously elicits very strong feelings from people on all sides of the conflict. We fail to understand the heavy price people pay for challenging the authoritarian states, such as Syria, Iran, Egypt. In the case of Syria, protests were banned under the an emergency law, which was in place since 1963, as long as the ruling Ba'ath Party. What did you hear from people who took to the streets in March of 2011 and even before that? You argue that these protest movements really started on February 23rd. Actually, they started in, in that week. And initially, they were very small. There was the one in front of the Libyan embassy that I was there for on February 23, and that was considered one of the larger ones. There were about 200 people there that evening. And there were other small candlelit vigils outside the Egyptian embassy, for example, and in other places. And there were just a handful of people. First of all, the protests were in solidarity with Egyptian and Libyan protesters. What they were really trying to do was to see what they could get away with, what the regime would allow them to, to do in terms of public gatherings. They were pushing the boundaries somewhat. And nobody in those protests said anything about Syria, the Syrian Assad or anything like that. They were solely in solidarity with Arab protesters elsewhere. It wasn't until mid-March that protesters dropped the pretense of pan-Arab solidarity and they started calling for reform initially, not even regime change, but reform in Syria. What did people expect to happen by risking so many things and taking to the street? Some of these people that you interviewed, they thought that the regime would fall or yeah. that it would be a repeat of Egypt and Tunisia. We have to remember the context of you know what was happening at the time. The Egyptian uh, Mubarak had fallen, took 18 days. The Tunisian leader had fled. Libyan leader uh, Muammar al-Qaddafi was, was teetering. This Yemen, there were protests in Yemen. So this was the, the, the regional environment. There was a real sense that suddenly these men who seemed cemented to power might actually be uprooted and they might be uprooted by the people's voices, by the people taking to the streets. And it was a very powerful, real moment. You know, you talked about false narratives and the attempts to discredit those early protest movements are really upsetting to me because because they were real and, and uh, those people took to the streets and it was with incredible bravery and often with incredible fear in their hearts because they knew the consequences of doing so, of, you know, voicing opinions that their parents had taught them to lock away, to, to not even think about. This was real and it happened. And regardless of whatever and everything that happened afterwards, those moments were very real and they were very electrifying. And I walked with 
protesters in Egypt. I walked with them in Tunisia. I walked with them in, in Damascus and around Damascus in many neighborhoods of the capital and in other parts of Syria. And it was a frightening, electrifying moment. People you spoke with, did they think that Assad will give up or share power or they expected a scorched earth policy by the regime? You, know, you write, the state's initial tepid response of violence and lectures reverted to its familiar violence. But Syria had already changed. The great wall of fear had cracked. The silence was shattered. And then you write, the confrontation was existential for all sides from its inception. There was no turning back. You know, different people thought different things. Like I said, given the context of what was happening in the region, I very clearly remember people saying, okay, it might take longer in Syria, but it's going to happen. And I remember that that Ramadan in summer, every day they would protest in Ramadan after Tarawih prayers. And people were thinking that every Friday, as I said, last Friday, there was this sense that potentially he might be toppled. But there was also the historical understanding that this regime brokers no dissent. And every Syrian that you talk to almost could tell you about, uh, you know, when they were speaking honestly, would tell you about Hama and the 2004, I think it was, crushing of the, the Kurds, a small uprising by the Kurds who had asked for, because, uh, you know, they were stateless in Syria before 2011. Oh. So there were historical examples that some Syrians had internalized and they knew. They knew the price of dissent, the price that their regime would exact from them. Um, but at the same time, that you know, they were buoyed by this revolutionary wave that was sweeping through through the region. And if somebody like Mubarak could be uprooted, then just maybe, maybe somebody like uh, Bashar al-Assad could as well. But, you know, there were also others, some of whom I document in the book, like some of the Islamist characters, like Muhammad, who was a Jabhat al-Nusra al-Qaeda emir, or he ends up being one, um, who from the beginning very strongly believed that only violence would dislodge the Syrian regime and that that was the only way. So there were many different views depending also on, on, you know, what shaped a person and a person's worldview and their own, the stories that they knew and that their parents told them about uh, what kind of a governance system they were living under. Yeah, and Muhammad, because of an experience he had seeing one of his neighbors being beaten up and an old woman being beaten up in front of him, he carried the ghost of uh, the Hamma massacre with him. Yes, I mean, that was one of the, that's one of the two examples that I um, just referenced yeah. about what the regime could and would do and did do. So for some people, that past was very much present in their minds as they took to the streets or otherwise plotted to somehow bring down the regime. Your book, No Turning Back, focuses on four main characters from different locations and ideologies in Syria. Suleiman um, is a wealthy businessman who became a protester and he basically became an online activist. He uploaded protest video clips. He sent them to media organizations outside of Syria. Abu Azam, who was a poet, he became a fighter. Muhammad was a former uh, prisoner who joined Jabhat al-Nusra. And he smuggled foreign fighters into Syria. And then you also tell the story of the nine-year-old Ruha, who became one of the victims and narrates the destructive uh, nature of this war. Uh, tell us briefly how you came up with these um, characters, because you said that you spoke with so many people and you really had a difficult time to pick one, because they were all interesting and so complex. Every Syrian story is something that 
Hollywood couldn't script. They, they really, really are epic journeys. Um, some people have survived things that most of us can't even imagine. And, you know, over so many years of covering Syria from inside Syria, I had quite a few people who I could have profiled in this way. And it was um, heartbreaking for me to, to have to choose. It really was. I mean, initially I had about 10 protagonists and I was like, okay, this is, this is crazy. I can't profile 10 people. So I, I had to whittle it down and I ended up choosing these four because I, and you know, I say in, on page one, the first paragraph of the book, that this is only a sliver of the story. It is by no means a comprehensive story of Syria. I repeat it again several times that this is just a fraction of the story. And most of it is new material. Almost like I think 85% of it is stuff that was not previously published. And uh, it was really hard to choose characters and to, to figure out what to put in and what to keep out. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, I can't, I've, I've said it several times that I think you need it an encyclopedia to tell the story of Syria. That's very true. And it's very difficult because politically, it's yeah. such a fractured space that even within one city or one town, there are so many different rebel factions. But you really help us navigate this very complicated and dangerous and tragic uh, landscape. One of the characters that uh, you were just talking about, Muhammad, he was detained in 2006 for his Islamist sympathies. He was never convicted. And you write, Muhammad admired Al-Ghaid and Osama bin Laden. So how did this man this young man who was a mechanical engineer, end up being a top official in Jabhat al-Nusra. Yeah, as we briefly alluded to, he was radicalized early on. And when I, uh, and this is a man I've, I've, I've known for years, you know, we had some very frank discussions about, I wanted to understand exactly your question. How did he become the man that he became? Um, how does a person latch onto an ideology which most of us find abhorrent? and not only uh, believe it, but actively try and promote it and rise through the ranks of an organization that is like this. And he pointed to that one event from his childhood as the first, the first seed that was planted in him. He actually says, and I, uh, if I can remember the quote properly, he says, they planted hatred in me that day when he watched his neighbor and his neighbor's mother being humiliated and beaten and arrested uh, by the Syrian secret police. Uh, he was arrested because uh, on suspicion of being a member of the Muslim Brotherhood, even though he wasn't. And as time went on, he, um, as I detail in the book, he had questions about why this earlier Islamist insurgency had failed. And there were questions that he tried to seek answers to. That quest led him to men who were Al-Qaeda, basically, or who had Al-Qaeda sympathies. It was a quest that only grew as time passed. His brother fought in Iraq with Abu Musab al-Zarqawi. Mm. He was a foreign fighter in Iraq, fighting for, you know, al-Qaeda in Iraq. And he became a node, basically, in a communications network that was uh, largely comprised of foreign fighters. And in 2011, he saw his chance to, A, take revenge against the regime, and B, to work toward turning Syria into an Islamic state. You know, I mean, he was a very determined man in his quest to fulfill his goals. He and many other uh, Islamists, they were in a prison called uh, Sednaya. And yeah, he was actually in Palestine branch, but his um, his roommate, Abu Uthman, whose story I also tell, was in Sednaya. Yeah. Yes. And you write that the Syrian regime issued new amnesty laws, including Decree Number 61 in May of 2011, which covered 
quote, all members of the Muslim Brotherhood and other detainees belonging to political movements, as well as a decree which ended the decade-long state of emergency and abolished the Supreme State's Security Court. And Sidnaya, as you write, housed pre-trial detainees napped under the state of emergency laws, waiting sentencing, and those on whom the court had passed judgment. Sednaya and Palestine branch were emptied of Islamists and filled with protesters. And someone told you, I can't give you names, but we were told by brothers with a lot of experience in jihad that we were about to be released. Well, certainly the cellmates of the men who are, whose stories I tell in the book, and many, many, many others who I also spoke to. So supporters of uh, Bashar al-Assad will tell you that this was one of the requests of the opposition to release political prisoners. So in uh, releasing these Islamists, Assad was merely placating the protesters. That's what, what they will say. But Assad's opponents will point out that many peaceful protesters uh, remained behind bars and still remain behind bars and their fate is unknown. And yet these Islamists were released. So they're the two sides of that uh, story, depending on who you want to believe. These people ended up coming back to Syria. Some uh, people will say that uh, that it was an orchestrated move because he, he wanted to portray his enemies as terrorists. Mm. And even Abu Uthman, whom I quote in that book, and this is a man who was part of, I mean, he had a long history of uh, being a Salafi jihadi before he was picked up in, in uh, Saidnaya, and he, and he goes on to become Islamic State. But, uh, I mean, he clearly told me, as did others, that they knew that the regime would try and use them. And there were many men who, who were released from those prisons who I talked to who said they wouldn't even protest because they feared that the regime would photograph them because they it knew who they were and use their presence in the protests as an excuse to say, oh, look, they're all Salafi jihadis, that's who we're, we're up against. And, I mean, you know, look, this has also been Bashar al-Assad's line that he is facing a foreign conspiracy, Salafi jihadi conspiracy, terrorists, and that, you know, people who protested like Suleiman, the civil activist in the book, were simply duped into attending these things that, you know, they, they were just the others who were in the protest movement, but really they were all Salafi jihadis. So, I mean, you know, it sort of fed into a narrative. And I spoke to many of the people who were in Palestine and Sydney, and they were aware that they might be used. After the invasion and occupation of Iraq, Bashar al-Assad also got into the business of creating a corridor for jihadists. They transited through Syria to Iraq. And in doing so, you write, he achieved two objectives, identify and rid the Syrian regime of potential threats from homegrown Islamists, while at the same time keeping the Americans busy in Iraq. This is a top Ba'athist official who told you. He said the idea was, we'll send them there, meaning to Iraq. If they die, we'll be very happy. If they don't, and they come back, we'll arrest them because we don't need jihadists in Syria. He also told you that they set up training camps in the countryside around Aleppo, near the Iraqi border, for these jihadis to train them. And the operation was overseen by military intelligence. So apparently they trained them and they sent them to Iraq to fight. But eventually the same people, the same seasoned fighters, extremists, they came back to Syria to hunt them. Yes, I mean, it's, uh, it's politics in the Middle East. So tell me about this whole process of Bashar al-Assad exporting jihadists 
And then the relationship that Bashar al-Assad and his regime had with these jihadis who went to Iraq. I reference a number of different points in the book. Uh, in addition to the interview with the Ba'athists, there are WikiLeaks, lots of WikiLeaks cables about who knew what, when, what the Americans knew, the Jordanians, the Lebanese, the warnings that were sent to uh, Bashar al-Assad about his uh, duplicitous use of uh, jihadis that you just outlined. So there was a lot of talk about this behind the scenes at the time. And um, some of the facilitators who were actually, uh, you know, the the Syrian um, call for Iraqi jihad wasn't secret. The mufti, the Syrian mufti, had actually called for it, and he had sanctioned it, and he said that it was, you know, okay to go and fight the uh, the American occupiers over in Iraq. Uh, So some of these facilitators, some of these men who would uh, claim to help the uh, jihadis across the border were actually Syrian intelligence agents. And um, Muhammad, for example, the character in my book, the man in my book, he and his friends were very aware uh, that uh, some of these facilitators might actually be double agents. And so, uh, you talked about the detail in, the, in my book. There was so much more that I couldn't get get yeah. into about just how they knew who was working for the regime and who wasn't, and the different ways of trying to verify whether or not somebody was a legitimate facilitator or whether or not he was actually a regime agent. You know, this was uh, happening openly in some cases, especially in Aleppo, for example. So it wasn't really uh, a secret at the time. At some point, you write um, that in 2006, 2007, 30% of uh, jihadists and uh, fighters in Iraq were Syrians? Uh, That's based on the so-called Sinjar records, which were uh, records kept by uh, Al-Qaeda in Iraq, and they Mm. were found in the city of Sinjar by coalition forces. And they are available online at the CTC Center in both uh, Arabic and English. And uh, yeah, according to the statistics, and this is a, this is a border town close to Syria, the percentage of foreign fighters of Syrians in the foreign fighter list was very high. In the beginning, these protests were peaceful, and you spent a lot of time in Syria with the protesters. At what point? these protests start becoming more militarized and more violent. Well, the violence from the regime side was pretty early on, but the picking up arms on the opposition side happened at different times in different places. You know, this was a a spontaneous uprising. It was a leaderless uprising. It was happening in, you know, towns and cities across Syria, and in every town and every city, there were local leaders or locals who just sort of, uh, like Suleiman and his friends, who just came together and organized themselves into what they would call Tanskiyas, local uh, coordination committees. They later took on those names. But they were just sort of, you know, young men usually, but there were also some women who uh, came to the fore in their local communities. So it happened at different times in different places, and I outlined some of those places in the book like in Homs and in Jusr Shugur, for example, which is in a city in Idlib province. You know, t- to map out a timeline, uh, you know, while some places had picked up arms, in other places they were still protesting very peacefully. It's just a reflection of the fact that it was a fragmented, leaderless uprising. In the beginning, these rebels from different parts of Syria, they started arming themselves by going across the border and buying weapons from Turkey and Lebanon and bringing them back to Syria. You write that in March of 2012, far from the public eye, the Saudis and Qataris started choosing their team within the Syrian armed opposition. 
The Qataris wanted to deal with defectors, but not the Free Syrian Army's purported leader, the squabbling major generals and the colonels. They chose other interlocutors. So can you sort of lay out the map here for us exactly? Who were the, the rebel factions? And how did Qataris and the Saudis pick their favorite? Yeah, this is uh, new information in the book. I had previously reported on the uh, Saudi and the Qatari efforts to arm the uprising, and I'd done that uh, in Time magazine. But at the time, you know, my reporting suggested that it had started in the summer of 2012. But in the process of um, further digging for this book, I learned that it had happened much earlier on and that it had happened basically after the fall of Baba Amr, the iconic neighborhood in Homs, that was, you know, the first sort of armed rebel stronghold, if you want, um, or liberated territory, depending on, um, you know, your perspective. So I learned that it happened much earlier on, and this was all happening in secret. The Saudis, via their designated people and the Qataris, decided to actively try and choose who to arm in the Syrian uprising. And, you know, as I say in the book, the, the Qataris wanted to deal with the defectors, whereas the Saudis didn't want to have anything to do with any of the defectors. They wanted to deal with the civilians who had picked up arms. And your question of who were the rebels is, uh, is a very fluid one. Because as I detail in the book, and I detail the, the different structures that were set up. So in, in March 2012, the Saudis and the Qataris say, okay, we're going to get involved in this. And then you see the first structure, uh, the so-called Istanbul Room, and uh, how that operated. And then you see that the next incarnation, what the Qataris did. And then you see when the Americans got uh, more directly involved. I showed, or I wanted to show, part of how it became armed and the role of the foreign state in doing that and the effect and the impact on the ground of this foreign intervention. This Istanbul room, it started this small, but over time this expanded. So the Istanbul room wasn't a physical room, it was an idea. And uh, so they chose middlemen. And these were from, you know, most of the Syrian provinces, a couple of people from, from each province. And their task was to choose people from their province, armed groups, and to find out who deserved the free weapons and ammunition. It was a chaotic operation. Some of the middlemen didn't really have connections on the ground, or they you know, were accused of, uh, of uh, seeking pledges of loyalty in exchange for offering support to various groups. I mean, it became a, a patronage network that was basically corrupt, more or less. So the middlemen were cycled in and out of this quote-unquote room because of these problems. So it was it was quite a chaotic operation. And you say that this command center expanded and Saudis and Emiratis provided weapons and ammunition, including cluster bombs made in the United Arab Emirates. The Qataris, despite their separate deal with the enemy defectors in the officers' camp, also dolled out cash in the Istanbul room, it was supposed to be a command and control center. It would prove to be neither. They gave them money, but they really could not control what was happening on the ground in Syria. Partly that, and partly they actually fractured and fragmented the groups on the ground because they started picking favorites and playing rebels off against each other. They would tell the rebels to unite while they actually actively fragmented them. 
So it was not quite as uh, sort of simple as they offered uh, the guns and the ammunition and the money and the rebels just wouldn't come together. There were sinister hands at play in terms of fragmenting the rebel forces on the ground. So when did the Qataris and Saudis and Emiratis When did they stop funding these groups? Well, some people would say that they still haven't stopped funding some of the groups. Uh, later on, when the Americans became more actively involved, and I detail that in the book, yeah. and I detail the, the different procedure that uh, was in play then, you know, when the Americans uh, were in the front seat, so to speak, the Saudis, Qataris, Turks were all there, obviously, and they continued playing these games. They sort of imported their regional political rivalries onto the Syrian battlefield, which is, you know, what we see over and over again in, in the Middle East through p- proxy battles. And, uh, yeah, I mean, the Turks are still uh, physically in Syria at the moment. Uh, the Qataris, every day there seems to be a new coalition of uh, rebel groups forming or dissolving. So it's still a proxy battlefield, although although the, the kind of uh, direct Saudi, for example, influence or Qatari influence that we saw in 2012 is, is diminished. Yeah, you're uh, right. Battalions have started aligning with either the Saudis or the Qataris or with private sponsors from Kuwait, United Arab Emirates, and elsewhere. The Americans scrambled to try to grasp the complexity of the battlefield. In an August trip to Istanbul, then-Secretary of State Hillary Clinton met with a group of Syrian civil activists in a bid to understand who was who on the ground. So she basically asked them, we want you to tell us who we should deal with and who we should avoid. So Americans were kind of confused and lost as what to do. They were in the room. They were in every room. They were in the Istanbul room and they were elsewhere. But, you know, they weren't as hands-on as they would later mm. become. But, you know, I mean, Syrians often used to tell me, it's like, what is the U.S.'s policy here in Syria? And uh, with time, they came to, to view it as a cynical behind-the-scenes backing of Assad, that Obama, for example, said Assad must go, but he didn't actually do anything to facilitate Assad going. And on the contrary, that perhaps they just wanted him to stay, especially after, you know, the turmoil that that we saw in other Middle Eastern states where there had been uh, specifically Libya. Um, so this is a view that uh, that I heard from many, many Syrians, that the Americans, you know, weren't all in and they weren't all out, that it was a bit of a confused policy. One of the characters that we talked about, Suleiman, the young man who was uploading videos and hoping for news organizations to pick them up so he can give some exposure to what was happening on the ground in Syria in the early days. And eventually, a news organization did pick um, his videos up and people started sending him videos and he would just constantly upload them. So tell us about what Suleiman did and his contacts with this network called Sham News Network. It was uh, virtual. It was in Yemen for a bit and then it went to Brussels and then it was elsewhere. So Sham News Network was uh, one of the the many sort of platforms that came to the fore after the start of the Syrian uprising. You know, this is one of the discoveries, something that I discovered as I was investigating uh, what was happening. So I initially reached out to SNN because Sleiman would send his um, his footage and SNN would often pick it up and it would post it on its website and it would post it on its, uh, you know, Facebook page and other news organizations would pick it up. So that was my uh, initial reason for, for going to try and find out who was behind SNN. But as I dug deeper and deeper and deeper, I realized that SNN actually had a very different role, or at least the two founders of SNN, 
came to play a very different role in the Syrian uprising. And without giving too much away in the book, yeah. I detail what that role uh, was. And uh, I mean, this is a storyline that connects with uh, that of Abu Azam, who was a free Syrian army fighter, mm-hmm. the poet who mm-hmm. became a free Syrian army fighter. And I mean, Suleiman didn't, didn't know who SNN was, and he didn't realize the connection mm-hmm. between mm-hmm. SNN and the free Syrian army and, and, you know, other characters in the book. So it was just one of those things that you know you sometimes you hear something and you follow it and you dig and you dig and you dig and you dig and it leads you to something uh that is uh completely unexpected and that's what happened with my reporting on snn which i detail in the book and he had no idea he was just happy that his footage is reaching a wider audience but he had no idea who was behind this network and what were the implications of him being involved with this network? No, it wasn't. No, I mean, he didn't know who was behind it. He didn't know who was answering his Skype queries. Um, I found out who was answering his Skype queries and I went and met the man. Um, but Sleiman didn't know uh, any of it. He just, uh, because, I mean, don't forget that, you know, they, they were all still using anonymous names or changing their names and they were terrified of being found out for who they really were. So much so that uh, many of the activists who were in these SNN chat rooms would never speak, you know, voice-to-voice calls because they feared that their voices might identify and and then incriminate them. They would type their messages rather than speak. I mean, that's the level of fear that we're talking about. You know, Suleiman had no idea who was on the receiving end of his his messages or what those men would later come to do. Mm -hmm. The best character for me, was this amazing nine-year-old girl, Ruha. She became my guide in understanding the war in Syria and its impacts on ordinary people and how these communities are torn apart and the role that women play in keeping these communities together even yeah. during the hardest times. Oh, Ruha was a, is an incredible little girl. She's a young lady now. She would leave me speechless with some of the things that she would say. She was a very precocious girl. And um, she had a very keen awareness of what was happening around her. She was the eldest child in a family of very strong women. And she would absorb what was happening around her and try and uh, digest it and understand it in her own ways. And uh, you see exactly what you said. I mean, that's the reason that Ruha is in the book, because I wanted to show, you know, what happens to normal people and what happens to a family unit and through the eyes of this little girl over time. You know, we often see stories and you hear about a girl like Ruha, for example, in a particular moment at a particular time, but we don't often follow them for an extended period to really see how they change and the highs and lows of their lives, especially in, you know, such a a dangerous, highly charged uh, environment like the war in Syria in Ruha's hometown. So um, you see life in wartime through this girl's eyes. You write the town where she was from had become a canvas, a character telling its own story, cinder blocks added to already high fences around Homes near snipers spoke of terror. These streets had new names, too. One was dubbed Muharram, Forbidden Street, because after 8 p.m., regime snipers made it too dangerous to cross. Families still lived there. This is how people lived in Syria under barrel bombs and sniper shooters. Yeah, they had to continue. I mean, life continues. 
you do what you can. And um, you see over the years how Ruha's family gets used to life and how small things they used to worry them before uh, no, no longer worry them. It's amazing what humans can get used to. And it really is amazing to me how a person can acclimatize even in the harshest, most difficult conditions. And, and that's what the people of Syria had to do. And that's what they're still doing. It's not over yet. So when you decided to write this book and you went through thousands of pages, I guess, of notes and you started uh, revisiting and reliving those moments uh, you were in Syria, what struck you the most? The investigative elements of the book, mainly. Um, I went back, for example, and mapped out the, the arming um, and the foreign influence and interference mm-hmm. in Syria. And there were revelations there that I didn't know. In addition to the behind-the-scenes Al-Qaeda, how Al-Qaeda set itself up in Syria, although I had reported on this extensively, there was a lot of new information that I unearthed during my reporting for the for the book. So, you know, and I detail some of that in the book. So there were a number of revelations, mainly in the, in the investigative storylines that um, mm-hmm. underpin the book. Rania, a portion of your earning from this book will be donated to this organization called Inara. Tell us more about this organization and how are they helping refugees? Well, Inara was set up by CNN correspondent Arwa Damon, and it provides life-altering or life-saving medical care for uh, children and young people who are victims of, uh, of war. And, you know, it can seem so... The Syrian tragedy can seem so overwhelming and you can feel so helpless as somebody who's just watching it. But there are small ways to help and Inara, for me at least, is one of them. Because Ottawa will will say that she set it up because as journalists we often come across uh, young people and older people who are wounded in war and who need help. And yet they don't have either the financial means or they just don't know who to turn to. So Inara is, is an organization that they can turn to because it connects them with medical specialists in neighboring countries in the Middle East, and they can receive the assistance that they so desperately need. Rania Buzaid is a Beirut-based award-winning journalist who has reported from war-torn Syria since the year 2011. She is the author of No Turning Back, Life, Loss, and Hope in Wartime Syria. We spoke with her in Beirut. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voice of the Middle East and North Africa. Ever since the release of her debut solo album, Yanas, Lebanese singer and songwriter Yasmin Hamdan has been getting tremendous attention with her modern personal take on Arab pop, both in her native Beirut and the world over. Vomina's contributor, Paola Messina, caught up with her in New York during her U.S. tour promoting her new and third solo album, 
Jamilat, The Beautiful Ones, which is taken from the Mahmoud Darwish poem, to which Hamdan explains is an ode to womanhood celebrating beauty in multiplicity and contradictions. I have two very early memories. One, I was really small and we were living abroad and my mother was listening to Feru's song, Phebbaki uh, Lubnan, which is a kind of a, a nostalgic, sad song in a way, and in a way related to what was happening at that time. And my mother started not crying, but you know, she became very emotional and I was very surprised and I asked her and I remember her trying to explain to me what what it was what that emotion was and why this song was creating this emotion in her and I I remember feeling touched by that and you know I was small maybe I was maybe four or five years old That was the first memory um, and I, I was kind of very sensitive to music. The second one was a song of um, Adawiya, Ya Bint al-Sultan. He's this really very popular Egyptian singer, amazing, from the 80s, um, maybe 70s, I don't know, yeah, 80s. And uh, I remember he has this song and it used to drive me crazy. And I was just, I didn't understand why, but I would just start act weird. When I would hear it, I was just, whoa. It was my sister's birthday. We used to live in a building at the at the 10th floor. And probably I needed to attract attention. But anyway, everybody was here, her friends, and I. they put this song and it. I just went wild and I escaped. And everybody started to search for me, and I was hiding somewhere down, you know, down the building. I was all shaky, and 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 I realized that, you know, it was, it was a very dramatic moment for me, you know, musically. <laughs> I was sensitive to music at a very early stage. Uh, my father loves listening to music. He loved Beethoven. So Beethoven back, he loved Fayrouz, uh, Ziad Rahbani, Am Kalsoum. So in a way, you know, it was around me. My grandmother was singing all the time uh, Asmahan's song. So the first time I, I really heard Asmahan's real original song, I was shocked. 
because you know I always knew my grandmother's version. <laughs> Even there are when we started singing with Wisokis when we started search singing for Kolondif Kolonahif this cover song from Amar uh, Zanni. I had never heard the original song. I only knew my grandmother's version and that's how I started singing it. Going off of that a little bit, I'm sure these are influences, right, for you as a musician. Mm-hmm. But were there other figures in your life, maybe mentors or people that in music, in music, or in life? In life, a lot, yeah. a lot. I've met amazing people, and I've also read amazing people, and you know. So I would say many artists saved my life in a way, because I was a very existential kid. So in a way, it um, was a refuge for me. Music, literature, later on cinema, became something quite important for me more and more. I would say that when I started doing music in the beginning, I was not singing Arabic, but I was not. I was kind of doing like everybody here. Every kid almost has a band, you know, at school or whatever. In Lebanon, it was end of the civil war. After the civil war, it was it was a different environment, so it was not very common. You know, when I started doing music, it was I just wanted to have a, a more romantic life, you know, like something more sexy to do than other kids in my school. It was I was a bit bored actually. I used to find the environment a bit conservative because I had not lived there a lot. So, so yeah, I started listening to P.J. Harvey and The Cure and Sonic Youth and. Uh, Uh, Neil Young, you know, the first time I heard Neil Young, my heart broke. I don't know why, but it was one one record, and it just like I wouldn't understand what he's talking about, and I don't really care. But I was so emotional. Kid Bush, uh, Bjork, Portishead, Chet Baker. I used to love him because he's very calm. He calms me down actually. Mm, yeah, many artists like that. Radiohead, I used to like them very much. Because I had no education in music, uh, because I had lived in really many countries, and in some of the countries I lived in, I had no access to any kind of music. So I kind of had to educate my myself and my ears. So I became like a bully maker. I started like listening to everything, and and I don't know, you know, you cannot explain. This is chemistry. So some artists would just touch me really deep. Uh, I was really into Janis um, Joplin. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Jefferson's Airplane. Yeah, and I kind of some some psychedelic bands and stuff. I have funny stories like Zaid Hamdan, with whom I you know I started Soap Kills. When I met him, he was a DJ in a radio, We FM or something like that, like a hard rock radio. <laughs> and, and I, you know, one time I went to visit him at the radio. So it was like in a very popular neighborhood in Beirut so I ring the bell a veiled woman opens the door and I'm says oh I'm sorry I'm it's, it's maybe a mistake she says no what do you want I said I'm searching for a hard rock radio she says oh yeah it's from here and it's actually her brother so it's you know they had built a small like wooden wall 
and then you would walk in the house and go to the radio. And then when the radio closed, Zayd, because I wanted to hear more music, so Zayd came with like a huge box of hard rock cassettes and said, okay, you want to learn? So here we go. <laughs> and, you know, So I started listening to all of that too, which is funny. I started doing music this way, but the real click, the shtick that happened really was when I when I fell on Asmahan, Asmahan, who is a Syrian old, you know, uh, singer. She died in the 40s in the Nile. She has an amazing voice and amazing music, very edgy and very profound. And she has, you know, she's kind of, I don't know, I felt she was very free and uh, I was very touched by her voice. And I was in a party and I had... You know, I had a really great time, and it was maybe four o'clock, you know, at the BO18 or something. I was preparing to go back home, and the DJ, I was, you know, it was maybe a few people left, and the DJ just put her. And I just, I, the next day I went to the city and I started trying to find, because I asked him who, who this woman was, because I knew my grandmother used to sing that song, so. So I went and I found her music and through her I kind of got introduced to a lot of other artists. Abdul Wahab, for example, is kind of my guru. Abdul Wahab is this Egyptian composer and singer. You know, he, he died in the 80s, but I'm completely in love with him. And so I obsessed with, in the beginning, with Asmahan and Abdul Wahab. Abdul Wahab, I was, you know, I used to listen to the same song 100, 100 times a day. Which song? Ah, um, Al Gondol, I loved it. And I also loved Cleopatra. And it's it's long songs, and I, he also has songs because I have I collect old music, so I have like recordings of him singing at the age of nine or, or ten or and eleven and things like that. Things that are amazing, and this guy has an incredible voice, and he has amazing tracks, uh, not very well known, you know. So, but but the ones I really practiced singing actually was uh, yeah I practiced on Gondol and Cleopatra. And, you know, I started singing Arabic without really knowing the codes or the, you know. Um, and I was not at all into, you know, singing like it should be sang. Like I was not into codes and 
I respect that, but I could not pretend that I would be that person. So I had to find my way and my voice in the, in the middle of that, and and it organically, like naturally, I want. I you know I felt like I was going to learn singing through hearing, and not you know I tried going to conservatoire and stuff like that, but. I just I, I just don't fit in those spaces. I just I can't. So it was not good for me, and and so that's how I became like really everything goes through my ears, really, and that's that's how I learned singing and composing. listening to or even watching cinema or reading while you were making and working on this new album? I researched a lot, listening to a lot of like contemporary bands or artists from all over the world. I'm really into old stuff, so aside from the usual suspects that I listen to, Asmahan, Abdelhaib, Mkultum, you know, Zakiya Hamdan, I also research a lot Gulf music because I lived in the Gulf and I really feel it's a home, homey environment for me. And I love their music. I love their rhythms. The melodies are very pop. To my ears, it's very pop. I listened a lot to Sudani music. It's a little bit Chinese, by the way. Modes are a little bit Chinese. So I listen to a lot of Pakistani music, Tuareg music. So everything really. Yasmin Hamdan is a Lebanese singer and songwriter based in Paris. She spoke with Vomina's Paola Messina. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, produced in partnership with Arab Studies Institute. You can listen to more of this conversation at statushour.com. That's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. To get in touch, you can call us at 510-848-6767, extension 632, email vomekpfa at yahoo.com. Connect with us on our Facebook at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa or follow us on Vomina Radio. Please join us next time for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Hey.